Let us give our attention to the reading of our God's word this morning. A psalm. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise to the, before the king, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So ends the reading of our God's word. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it this morning. Father, your word tells us that we need reminders, that we are quick to forget, and that we need to be reminded that it is a safeguard to our faith. So as we come to your scripture this morning, our hope is not necessarily to see something new, but to be reminded of who you are and what you have done, why we need you and what we have in you. To be strengthened and comforted, to be stirred up to gratitude and joy about all that we have as your children. And so as we open your word, may we experience these things. Remind us again of the beauty of your holiness and the glory of your salvation and the joy of being your people. Amen. You may be seated. a psalm about making a joyful noise makes you think about music and music is powerful music can unite and music can divide it can change people and it can define a generation an old Scotsman famously said uh, let me write the songs of a nation and I care not who makes its laws and the point that he was trying to make was that songs have more power over a, a, a people than the nation's laws do. Today's songwriters have more influence over the hearts and the minds of those uh, in this nation than, than the men and women uh, occupying the upper and lower chambers of our Congress. Uh, music is powerful. And that is because music is a gift from God. Uh, our, our God is a musical God and he made us to be musical because he's musical. Uh, music gets at the deepest parts of who we are. Music connects with what is going on in our souls deep inside and even helps us to get our emotions out to express ourselves. And so happy souls sing happy songs. Tortured souls sing 
tortured songs. Uh, despairing souls sing songs of despair. Grieving souls sing songs of sorrow. And that's okay. It's okay to sing songs of sorrow because the Bible uh, tells us that, that we are to lament in our grief. The Bible gives us songs of sorrow, lamentations. But laments are not hopeless. Laments uh, betray uh, a, a, a hope and anticipation and a longing for, for resurrection. And so laments are different than songs of despair. But much of today's music, well, really for the last 50 years or so, is hopeless. So much of our music today is despairing. And I think it's easy to miss why. I think there's something behind that despair in today's music. And it's a sense of entitlement. Uh, what our songs today, and really for the last half century, are saying is there is injustice. And to be sure, there is. But the problem with our music is that there's no admission of the injustice in our own hearts. All the injustice is seen as being outside, and so there's only blame of others. Blame of the universe, and ultimately blame of God. In today's music, there's no humility. And where there's no humility, there's only despair, self-pity, and blaming of others. In other words, when we don't sing songs of joy, it's probably because we don't understand who we are and how much we have been given. And that's where our psalm comes in. That's where Psalm 98 comes in. It has that well-known phrase, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Um, It's well-known, and yet it only shows up in three psalms. Psalm 95, Psalm 100, and our psalm, Psalm 98. And really, the command to make a joyful noise is at the heart of our psalm. It shows up twice at the center. Uh, Its placement is important. This is what this psalm is about. God commands his people, God commands us to make a joyful noise, to sing songs of joy. And a joyful noise is not about the quality of the song or even the voices that sing it. A joyful noise is about the heart that is singing and what it's singing about. Joyful songs are songs of thanksgiving, songs of contentment, songs that praise God for what he has done for us and what he will do for us. And Psalm 98 beautifully weaves these two themes, what God has done and what God will do together into the psalm as an example for us of what a joyful noise looks like. It looks at what God has done in the past with a confidence that he will do and act the same way in the future. And it's that confidence that teaches us to sing songs of joy. Songs of joy flow out of a confidence in our God. And so really, my hope this morning as we look at Psalm 98 is really to drive home this point. Joyful praise is the natural and appropriate 
response to the Lord's salvation. Joyful praise is the natural and the appropriate response to the Lord's salvation. So that's what we want to look at uh, today. Uh, Psalm 98 is really answering... uh, a question uh, or questions that arise in Psalm 89, uh, about nine psalms back. Uh, remember, the psalms are not arranged uh, chronologically, not arranged by author, they're arranged more thematically. And Psalm 89 raises questions about the arm of the Lord. Early on, Psalm 89 in verses 10 and 13 cries out. It says to God, you crushed Egypt like a carcass. Beautiful song. Uh, You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High is your right hand. And so it starts with rehearsing God's history of what he did to Egypt when he brought Israel out. And it's hearkening back uh, to Exodus 15 that Pastor, Pastor Isaac preached for us just a few weeks ago on the song that Moses uh, taught Israel to sing as they passed through the Red Sea and came up onto the shore on the other side. They sang this, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. So Psalm 89 is rehearsing those lyrics that Moses gave Israel in Exodus 15. But there's a catch. Psalm 89 quotes those, but it's leading somewhere, and they're sort of setting God up uh, for a little zinger, because as the psalm closes, it asks, Lord, where has been your, or where is your steadfast love of old, which you, by your faithfulness, you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. In other words, Psalm 89 uh, is filled with pain, even despair, because it's saying, you used to care for us. Look what you did under Moses. Look what you did by your mighty right arm, your outstretched hand. Where is that God as we sit here and we suffer? And we are mocked. Lord, you taught us to sing about your deliverance, your mighty hand. Well, are you going to save us? Do you remember us? Do you remember your promises? You can hear the pain, the anger, the accusation. And so when Psalm 98 opens with a reference to God's, uh, how God worked out salvation by his right hand and his holy arm in verse 2, it's echoing not just Exodus, but it's picking up that unfinished business of Psalm 89. And look at verse 3. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness. That's where Psalm 89 uh, ended with that concluding question. Do you remember? Do you remember us? And before we move on, we need to understand that remembering in the Bible is not the opposite of forgetting. It's, not, it's so much more than not forgetting. Because God doesn't forget. Um, God is constantly aware of all things. There is never one bit of information that is outside of God's immediate awareness and attention. 
When God says he remembers, what he means is he's about to act. So in Genesis 9, when God sets the, the, the rainbow in the sky, and he says, when I see this, I will remember not to destroy the earth. <laughs> He's not saying, I might forget and accidentally destroy the earth. So here's, no. What he's saying is, as surely as you see this, I remember my promise, and I will not destroy the earth. Um, in Exodus 2, When God says he remembered his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he's not saying for four centuries he had forgotten. What it's saying is he is about to keep his promises. He is about to act. And so verse 3 in Psalm 98 is letting us know that God is getting ready to act. Yes, the Lord does remember. Yes, he does come to deliver his people, just not always in their timing. This is the language that God used to the prophet Isaiah when Israel uh, was, was once again led away into captivity. Isaiah, as God's prophet, had the job of both confronting Israel of their sin and also proclaiming God's promise to come and rescue them. And when Isaiah gets to that second part, the part about, about God's rescue, he dusts off that language from Israel that they used on the shore of the Red Sea so many years before. And he says this, we, we heard some of this language in our declaration of pardon this morning. He says that seeing that there was no one uh, to deliver his people, Isaiah said that God was going to send his holy arm before the eyes of the nations and that he would bring salvation to his people. Isaiah was saying, remember what God has done. Because God hasn't changed. He is the same God. And he's going to do it again. In other words, as he has been, so ever shall he be. Our God doesn't change. And that's why we can never sing songs of despair. Because we are never without hope. To be in despair is to be without hope. It is to say there's nothing that can happen in the future that will rescue me. And if our God is the same God as Israel had, if our God doesn't change, then he is the God who rescues his people. And we are never without hope. And if we are never without hope, we can never be in despair. And if we can never be in despair, we can never sing songs of despair. Indeed, in time, God remembered his promise and he brought Israel back out of captivity in Assyria, back into the promised land. That is uh, where Jesus, where they were when Jesus came into this world. But God was not done using this language, that he remembers his promises and he'll come and he'll rescue you. In fact, that language that we read in our psalm, that we read in Isaiah, that we read in Exodus chapter 15, shows up on the lips of Mary... As she took Hannah's prayer, as we looked at uh, back at Christmas, onto her own lips while she was reflecting on the coming birth of the child she carried in her womb. Listen to what Mary sang 
while she was visiting her cousin Elizabeth. Mary said this, He, that is God, has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Do you see how Mary picks up on those same two themes? The arm and God remembering. They always show up together. Mary says he remembers us and he delivers us by his own strength. But here in Mary's prayer, we we, we see an answer to this sort of mystery that's been hanging since the days of Isaiah. Because when Isaiah talked about God's arm, it wasn't simply the statement of strength. He he called the arm a a him, a he. he, The arm comes and he does this. That the arm is this person who redeems and rescues And Mary's saying, I am carrying that one of whom Isaiah spoke in my womb. And he's coming to save us. So it's no surprise that that 30 years later, Jesus himself would say, I did not come into this world to judge the world, but to save the world. Because what Jesus is saying is more deadly than Egypt more dangerous than Assyria or Babylon or the Philistines, the Hittites, the Girgashites, is your sin within your own heart. In other words, Jesus is saying, what benefit is it to, to be freed from all political oppression if you don't have peace with God? The salvation I bring is, is, the, is against the most deadly enemy you have ever faced, the sin within your own heart. But that salvation that Jesus brings comes at a great cost because in order to bring it, he had to sur- surrender any divine protection. He himself had to be shackled. He himself had to be enslaved. And he himself had to bear our judgment in our place. And yet there dying on the cross, he purchased our redemption. He paid the price we owed. And he purchased us. He bought us. He redeemed us out of sin and death. He shattered the enemy. And he delivered us from, his, from the enemy's power. And so Jesus and the apostles describe our salvation as a new exodus, a, a greater redemption than Israel ever witnessed as they crossed through the Red Sea and watched Pharaoh and his army destroyed and drowned behind them. That was what Jesus came for the first time. That's why he came into this world 2,000 years ago. And it's why his mother rightly called him the arm of the Lord. But he wasn't done. There's more that needs to be done when he returns. 
And that's what's in view in the last three verses of Psalm 98 and why creation sings. Uh, In verses 7 and 8, we see nature personified as cheering and clapping its hands and singing songs of joy to the Lord. And the reason for this celebration is then given in verse 9 because God comes to judge the earth. Uh, it, this isn't talking about Jesus' first coming when, when he came into the world through Mary's womb. This is talking about when he returns uh, at the very end to judge the world. And this isn't the only place that the Bible personifies creation as longing for that day. As if it's reflecting on our psalm, Romans says, Creation waits with eager longing for the resurrection of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. It's Romans 8. In other words, creation is seen as being in bondage. Uh, what, it's, what, what it's saying is that because of our sin, creation or the earth has had to become the storage unit, if I, if I can be crass, of our corpses... Until the day of resurrection. Remember, death is not part of creation. Death is not natural. It's part of the curse. It's because of the fall. But where do these rotting bodies get placed and stored until the resurrection? Well, the earth has had to become that storage place. And the earth doesn't like it. That's not what it was created for. And so creation waits, anticipating that day when the Lord remembers and comes and fulfills its promise and removes all dead bodies. Creation is not worried that God will forget. Creation is confident that God will keep his promises. And that confidence enables the seas and the ground and the rivers and the hills to clap their hands and to sing praise. Their song is not one of despair because they have hope and confidence. They can grieve, they can lament, but they can't despair because despair would be to admit no hope, no confidence in God. And so their joy is not from what is, but what they know must come when the Lord comes to judge the earth. And so creation sings for joy. How could it be any other way? Creation has hope. But the, the goal of the psalm is not just to tell you what creation does, but to invite you to join with creation and you yourself make a joyful noise. And that's what we find at the heart, at the center of the psalm in verses 6 through 8. Um, this, this psalm has traced God's faithfulness from uh, Egypt to Assyria. I'm sorry, in verses 4 through 6. Um, 
has traced God's faithfulness from Egypt to Assyria. And now uh, we saw that Luke picked up on that with Jesus coming to this earth. And it, and it casts our eyes further in verses 7 through 9 to that last day when he will return and set all things right. And, and the point is, is that the God who delivered Israel out of Egypt, who, who brought Israel back from exile in Assyria, the God who delivers us out of sin and death will come. He will come again. And he will deliver us from this passing present age and all of its miseries. And if you understand that, if you believe that, then your heart must be filled with joy. And your music must follow. Nothing robs people of joy like misplaced trust. When you place your hope in that which can offer no hope, you end in despair. And whether that's the anti-authoritarian music of the 60s and 70s, or the punk of the 80s, the grunge of the 90s, or just the me, me, me music of the last 20 years, it's all the same thing. The universe owes me, and I'm waiting for the debt to be paid. And you ask, no wonder there's no hope. No wonder those who write those songs are are plagued with suicide and despair. But their music resonates with those who have no hope and it feeds their despair. And so tortured souls sing tortured music. Despairing souls sing songs without hope. I hope you don't want to, but if you want to experience despair, here's the trick. Focus on what you think you deserve but don't have and convince yourself you've been mistreated and despair will soon follow. But what happens when you turn your gaze from what you think you deserve and all the imagined slights you've endured... What happens when you remember the God who delivered Israel out of Egypt and slavery, out of captivity of of Assyria and Babylon, out of slavery to sin and death? What happens when you remember that this same God will come again to set all things right? That this God will, will himself wipe away every tear from your eye? And that death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. For the the former things will have passed away. When you think about those things, how can you not join creation in singing songs of joy? If you want to experience hope and joy, think about what you do deserve but have been spared from. Think about the gift of salvation and the inheritance that awaits you. Consider the love of your heavenly Father who will not rest until he has set all things right and brought you into his eternal presence.
until that day, you can experience grief, but not despair. Grief comes from loss. When you have no hope, it becomes despair. But when you have hope, it becomes lamentation, longing for restoration. One who grieves and hope grieves with joy. The command to make a joyful noise is a command to remember who you are and where you are headed. And that's why our psalm begins with rehearsing what God's salvation in the past has looked like and then looking to the day of his return. Because that's the necessary context for making a joyful noise. And the more we believe this, the more that we are truly convinced of these things, the more we will break forth in joyous song and sing praises. We'll make a joyful noise before the King, our Lord. This whole story of what he has done and what he will do is made visible for us in the meal that he has set before us. In the bread and the wine, we see the arm of the Lord who remembered us and came into this world to deliver us from sin and death. When we hear that, we have to confess with verse 1 that he has done marvelous things. Verse 2, he has made his salvation known. But we also have to be reminded with verse 9 that he will come to finish what he has begun. Because our God doesn't change. And on that day, we will enjoy a feast of an entirely different sort. There will be no scarcity, no meagerness, and no tears. For then we will be filled beyond measure and our joy will be complete. And we have the promise when that day comes that we will never grieve nor mourn again. Until then, the Lord invites us to his table both to tell us that he remembers us in his steadfast love and that we are not alone while we, are, while we wait, but also as a call for us to remember his promises, his word, his character, his love, and that we are his, and he is ours, and we are never without hope. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive uh, this gift from our God this morning. And please join me in bowing before our God in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word, your sacrament, they remind us of who you are. The great king, the loving savior, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And we rejoice. We rejoice that you have not forgotten us, but in your perfect time you will complete what you have begun. Until then, we ask that you would teach us to sing songs of joy, to join your creation in confidence that you will set all things right, that you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more, 
and neither there shall be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things will have passed away and all that will remain is your glorious kingdom for all eternity. Even so we pray. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.